Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How are you today? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. A bit tired. It's late at night. Well, it seems late at night. It's half past eight. It does feel quite late at night. It's because it's dark already. Yeah, actually, someone I, was, I had a drink with someone the other night and they commented that we're so used to not dark time being actual sleep time that we can't handle the early evenings that have swooped upon us and they're making us all feel like we should be sleeping much earlier than we should. Yeah, I feel like I should. And also, I've got my coat out, so... Yeah. Oh, your proper coat? Not my proper coat, like mm. my transitional coat. I have sure. two transitional coats for yeah. different occasions, yeah. obviously. Uh. Yes, reasonable, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've got my transitional coats out, um, which is... I've got my um, log fire, Muji green log fire candle going, so that means autumn's officially started in the southern household. Wow, it's not... I don't think it's quite autumn time um, in the Matthewson household in Not in the Matthewson. No. Yeah. No, I've officially started. My jumpers are out. My thing's going. I'm on my second gin and tonic of the evening. It's I autumn. have started wearing uh, boots again instead of sneakers. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to wear boots today. It was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, we should probably talk about what we do and remember. Oh, yeah. We had a nice streak uh, of remembering to, to do that, and then we didn't the last couple, I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're Janina Matthewson, writer, podcaster, woman of mystery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Emma Southern, writer, historian, doctor of mystery. Doctor of mystery. Mm-hmm. And together we are History of Sexy. Yeah, we talk about history. We answer your questions that you never could be bothered researching yourself for fun and sexiness. Yes, yeah. for fun and sexiness. And, and also it's... occasionally tell you about our boots. Um... Yeah, but more importantly than boots, I think this episode we should also mention... Uh, Emma just had a book published. It's very good. Uh, it's called Agrippina, um, Emperor Exile, Empress Exile, Hustler Whore. Yep. Um, about one of the most important women of the Roman Empire, and it is very, very good. She manages to talk about ancient Rome in an authoritative, interesting way, while also mentioning David Cameron fucking a pig. So you can't go wrong. <laughs> so I feel like it's important that that was put down on paper somewhere uh, yeah. it's also it's a very useful analogy for what i'm trying to say there about how rumor works yeah so. it is it does it, it although it does pour cold water on the dreams of those who like to believe that david cameron did fuck a pig i mean it's okay you can still believe it that's yeah. the whole point of the analogy like yeah that we believe it and don't believe it at the same time yeah it's very good um, it's a very good book thank you everyone should read um, it you can buy it in order to find out why the hell I'm talking about it, you have to buy it on, on the Amazons yeah. or in a bookshop, ideally. Yeah. On Hive, something like that. Yeah, Hive is very good. Hive is very good. I work for Waterstones, so I should mention Waterstones as well. Yeah, you can buy Waterstones, which owns <laughs> all bookshops now. They do now. Mm. But there's only eight of them, so... Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amazon killed all of them. It did. So oh, we well. now own all eight bookshops. <laughs> What are we talking um, about this week? So this week we have a question from Nick Shooter, who is at Small Town Browse, um, and who is very, very soon going to have his first baby. Uh, and he says, at some point, I expect to have to tell my child you've never had it so good. What historical facts could back this up? Which leads me to suspect that he has a predetermined uh, conclusion that he would like us to support. 
<laughs> yeah. So basically, we meant to justify the statement. I used to walk 15 miles through the snow, <laughs> upwards in both directions. Yeah. We just all I had was snot sandwiches once a week. <laughs> and if we were unlucky, we didn't even get the sandwich. But <laughs> um, um, that's yeah. basically what he wants, and it's actually not that not that hard to <laughs> to agree with, because truthfully, Nick. And his wife, Claire, are very lovely middle-class people from Nottingham with lovely middle-class jobs and live in a time of where middle-class affluence is pretty much unprecedented Mm -hmm. and in a time and a place of remarkable stability and I mean, you say that, it does feel like that could be upended at any moment just now. It does, but it hasn't yet. And yeah. as yet, there's no, you know, armies in the streets and people being disappeared or, uh, you know. As far as political crises go, it's quite a peaceful one. It's mostly just people shouting at each other on the internet. Yeah, that is true. Sometimes you do have to put things in perspective and remember that, you know, there was a time where, you know, talking to the wrong woman could get you executed and have your head stuck on a pike on the Tower of London. That doesn't happen exactly. anymore. And it's important exactly. to remember sometimes. And sometimes, you know, political instability is suddenly people coming up with big knives um, mm-hmm. and killing a lot of people. And so far, we've only only had that one political death that we don't talk about, apparently. So, yep. <laughs> ups and downs. But, like, in the grand scheme of things, current Britain is pretty stable, pretty prosperous. It's not at its best, but it's doing all right. Mm-hmm. And so, generally, we can say that Nick's child will probably have a remarkable prolonged childhood until it's about 18 where it will be protected and seen as a being that requires protection and care and to be supported and loved and it will definitely have great parents so it would probably have a great childhood so it's actually not that difficult in Nick's case to say that it will have it really will probably never have had it so good no kids will have had it this good (laughs) for a very long time but also, obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> Reasonably sure we've missold our podcast, Janina, with the name. We should have called it History is Complicated. We should. Um, <laughs> History is more complicated than that. Yeah. But I don't think that's as, you know, it doesn't grab you. It's not as snappy. It's not as snappy, no. No. And mostly it's more complicated than that because the issue of what a child is and what childhood is mm-hmm. is actually a lot more complicated than you think. Because a child is like incredibly familiar and you think that you know when you're looking at one that you know <laughs> what it is. <laughs> like that thing over there that's small and trying to put a Lego up its nose is obviously Not a an adult. Yeah. Or Shouldn't be responsible for holding down a job. Yeah. Or that, you know, that tiny little thing that keeps drawing on the walls is probably not responsible for its own welfare. Mm. But it is not that simple. That is a construction because we don't make our eight-year-olds go to work. So our eight-year-olds don't have to learn to work. Basically, they can still be putting Legos up their noses mm-hmm. and doing that fucking Fortnite dance that they will do if you glance <laughs> at them for half a second. Um, I have seven nieces and nephews, of which six are under the age of... No one's 11 now, so under 8, 11, uh, and if you just blink at them or even, like, 
any time one of them is doing that fortnight flossing dance that nobody (laughs) over the age of 20 can do. See, my nieces and nephews aren't quite old enough for that yet. One of them just started school. My uh, my nephew just started school. He's the oldest. Um, So he has not, as far as I'm aware, learnt any fortnight dances. They, it's like some kind of plague for children under 12. It's sure. wild. Um, like we all had our in, thing, you know. I don't remember yeah. what mine was when I was under 12. don't know what was going mm. on in my life then, apart from the Oregon Trail. <laughs> we had French skipping was real big in my school, I remember that. What's French yeah. skipping? It is... Anyway, that's what kids do now. Yeah. That's basically how you can spot a child. Is it, Have they got some kind of weird fucking fad that you don't understand? Yeah. But which is vitally important at this moment. And you think that that is, like, it's obvious that a child is a person who is under 16, or maybe a child is a person who is under 18, or maybe a child is a person who is under 14, or... Maybe there are multiple legal definitions of what a child is, (laughs) which makes it very complicated. And then equally, that definition of what a child is, is really defined by race and class as well for a long time, which is that childhood is a privilege that only some get. And for the most part in the modern world, that privilege is extended to white children basically or white seeming children Mm. it's one of those situations i think as well where um legally in most country in most western countries all children have the same legal protections and the same rights but the the energy that is put into ensuring they are met is not even yes is not the same yeah and you see this a lot in for example America, where black children are not treated as children, they are treated, like, particularly black boys are treated as men, and they are considered to be a threat at all times, regardless of how old they are or their size, or I think just because of the colour of their skin. And that's not obviously by their own families, that's by predominantly white culture around society. Um, Yeah. So, for example, Tamir Rice, who is shot a few years ago when he was 12 was shot because by police because he was seen as a threat Mm. when he was a 12 year old boy sitting on a swing holding a plastic gun and they just killed him within about 10 seconds of looking at him basically Mm. whereas on the other hand today i read a our relationships post where a white woman described her 25 year old drug addict son who was trying to move his homeless friends into their house is just a kid who she didn't <laughs> want to have to deal with any responsibilities for his life. Um, and he's 25 years old. And I don't think anyone really thinks that a 25 year old can be described as a kid. Yeah. There are definite, and you see this as well with the way that racists talk about asylum seekers, that they want to talk about boys coming in as men, yeah. regardless. Like 14 year old boys are described as men on regular basis because they can grow facial hair mm-hmm. and nobody would describe a 14 year old boy from you know white boy from fucking Essex as a as a man yeah. and this is a, a real issue that is really big in childhood studies obviously mm. and is big in the way that people look at childhood which is that 
the concept of child is not consistently applied. The concept of being a child is a privilege. And I think similar things are true when you look at um, relationships between young girls and older men. Like that is again Mm -hmm. and often a defence that is put forward that, you know, a 14, 15 year old girl. Uh, was, was mature enough to know what she was doing, despite the fact that she's still legally defined as a child. And anyone who has been a 14 or a 15-year-old girl knows that she very much is not an adult. I think that you also get this with with the reverse when you have female teachers and female authority figures who prey on young boys, mm. which is that there is often a discussion that the boy knew what he was doing the boy would have wanted it who what boy wouldn't want that blah 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 yeah and they're treated in a way they're not victimized in the same way that girls often are yeah because again it's a it's a privilege of innocence and of requiring protection and of vulnerability yeah which is associated with with whiteness and is associated with certain characteristics which are not consistently applied to everybody and and it's also a class issue you know the privileges of childhood and this is a lot of what we're going to talk about when we go through the all the ways in which Nick's child's <laughs> life is going to be a lot better than everyone else a huge amount of what we're going to be talking about is the fact that Nick's child is going to exist in the middle class a class which didn't really exist until the industrial revolution in like actual numbers when there was only really an upper class who were fairly free and independent and a working class who were working hard and a poor who were destitute and a middle class which afforded all of the privileges of middle classness um, <laughs> and of affluence which is offers freedoms but while still being attached to work offers a lot of protections and privileges that were not available to people in the past. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about is the poor, basically, and the working (laughs) class and how shit it was to be that. Because we're going to assume that was Nick in the past, he probably would have been a working class person rather than an upper class person because it's it's easier to tell anecdotes about how shit life would have been, to be (laughs) honest. And if, Nick, what you want is stories about how shit life would have been in the past, (laughs) then being like, oh, well, if you were really rich, I'm sure it was great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe less great if your child was a girl because she might have been, you know, considered a bargaining chip in the never-ending games of family status absolutely then so were boys to the same extent but yeah Yeah. girls were but it was still kind of better than being a girl who was poor when you were a bargaining chip and also poor (laughs) (laughs) that is very true (laughs) okay but first i'm going to talk a bit about the history of childhood in terms of the historiography of childhood because it's really fun and dumb It has some good quotes and I think it's important because like I think that the idea of like you've never had it so good does tie into the very traditional narrative of the history was being a child was rubbish and then it got better and then the Victorians invented children and now it's all okay <laughs> basically yeah, sure. Um, and that comes from these ni- like three or four 1970s historians called uh, Lloyd de Morse, who mm. is a person who called himself a psycho-historian, <laughs> which is, I think, something that he took directly from Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I've got to respect that. Get your job titles where you find them, you know, don't let the world project onto you what you are. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want to take your stuff from Isaac Asimov, in Asimov, I don't know if you've read the Foundation series, it's great, but um, psychohistory is the use of mathematics and sociology to predict the future behaviour of humanity in the galactic empire in which it exists. And so there is... I'm assuming that's not what Lloyd DeMouth was doing. (laughs) No, it's not. But he, basically this guy called Harry Seldon invents psychohistory and then makes these predictions of like what's going to happen 500 years in the future and then like a thousand years in the future and then makes all of these recordings so that he predicts like in 80 years there's going to be a crisis and they're going to need a recording of me in order to tell them what to do. (laughs) And then, yeah, it's great. Uh, It's very, very funny as a process uh, Lord de Morse's version is not that sadly it is basically a version of what the French called mentalités history which is the history of like psychological so basically like trying to psychoanalyze people in the, basically from the past. yeah yeah basically trying to psychoanalyze societies mm-hmm <laughs> which is interesting and so he invented this spectrum where he in put together types of social personalities and then match those onto psychiatric disorders that he took out of like the dsm3 or whatever was around in 1974 and so he's like the romans were schizoid narcissistic (laughs) because they may be engaged in infanticide the middle later middle ages he considered to be borderline uh-huh, sure. Because some of them love their children, some didn't. Uh, <laughs> he considers the modern world to be in a neurotic phase. Sure. Because they worry too much. We do worry a lot. Uh, and to be involved in socialising. And he hopes that eventually people will reach the individuated theory whereby there will be an absolute end to the humiliation of the control of the child. Okay, sure. And he wrote a book. Sounds reasonable. Was- he wrote a book which was staggeringly influential which line one literally page one line one open lloyd de morse's history of childhood and if you type in history of childhood into google this is still the first thing that will come up is the history of childhood is a nightmare from which we have only just begun to awaken the further back when in history one goes the lower the level of child care and the more likely children are to be killed abandoned beaten terrorized and sexually abused Oops. Is a searing <laughs> indictment on the past of literally everyone in history until 1974. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is obviously problematic. Slightly before him in the 60s, there was a guy called Philippe Perry's who wrote a book in French, which is translated as The Centuries of Childhood. And he was an art historian who looked at a load of paintings and then decided that because in the past, in Western history, because obviously they're only interested in Western history, Mm -hmm. in the past, people didn't paint children in child's clothes. They just painted them in miniature adult clothes. Therefore, the concept of childhood didn't exist. Right. Sure. That's... And... Like... It's one of those things where you're like, someone has written a book here, clearly, without ever having read one. (laughs) He looked at a lot of paintings, so... Yeah. Yeah, at the time, he was never, like, universally accepted, even at the time. Like, 1962, he published that, and immediately in 1962, people were like, Philippe, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Like, all I have to do is think about this for two seconds to realise that, well, they didn't paint it, therefore it wasn't there. (laughs) 
is a dumb thing yeah. to say. You know how but... still you have to be for someone to paint you, Philippe? It's very still. Yeah. I've done it. It's Do you, know... you have to be very still. Do you know how rich you have to be to be able to afford yeah. someone to paint your entire family? <laughs> exactly. Very rich. Yeah. So God bless him. But he did start a conversation, which is important. But to this day, like if you pick up a book on the history of childhood in Western Europe, then there will probably be a reference to Aries going at least to say nobody believes that anymore because he's just like this touch point. And then you have two other guys called Lawrence Stone and Edward Shorter who are less barking mad, Mm -hmm. but do very much adhere to the idea that childhood in the past either didn't really exist or was just this terrible grinding hideousness that people tried to survive and mostly didn't right like that everything in the past was completely horrible and that everything now is is morally and empirically better because we have a concept of childhood and protect our children Mm. They very much have this idea that children should be protected and must be protected and must be looked after until an age, although neither of them are particularly clear on when Mm. childhood ends and when it's okay to start killing and abandoning people. But they're pretty clear that it was bad in the past and now it's better. I mean, Um, I think... And and societies have evolved. The sticking point with... I mean, mean, particularly with Aries, obviously, who was buck wild, but, like... (laughs) <laughs> we we can say simply that we have always had a concept of childhood because so many different societies and cultures have a point at which childhood ends. There are yeah. ceremonies in almost every culture that denote the end of childhood. So, therefore, it <laughs> Therefore. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's point one of a lot of points. <laughs> but, yeah, Absolutely. And just like you have to think, obviously they had a concept of childhood, Philippe, because you can't treat a two-year-old like a 35-year-old. No, you can't. (laughs) You have to teach, you have to feed them and put food in their stupid little mouths while they're trying to mosh it into their stupid hair. Obviously we know what childhood is. And also, yeah, as you say, like there's always a cultural idea of childhood. Yeah. And at no point in history are people attempting to treat five-year-olds like they're adults. Yeah, no, and it's seen as... like a, a sacred thing as well. It's it's a precious thing. That's why there is so much symbolism in its end. Whether that's you know having your uh, is it confirmation in the Catholic Church when you're yeah uh, like thirteen or um, Australian Aboriginals have a walkabout which marks the transition. Yeah. Like it is there is so much weight put behind those ceremonies because it's significant. The difference between being a child and an adult is patently obvious and and culturally significant to everyone. Yeah, and like rich Romans would have a a ceremony called the Toga Virialis where boys would take off their childhood tunic and put on the toga and take off the bulla, which was this Mm. like big, big pendant that they would wear to signify their childhood and that they needed protection from the gods and they would take that off and then put on the toga to say they were a man and now they could protect themselves, basically. Yeah. And like, yeah, there's always been this this category of child and then adult. Yeah. But it's not an immutable category. And the idea that things in the past were bad and now they are good is just such a yeah. like a blanket. I am looking at this from the perspective of an affluent white male. Yes, <laughs> And completely. I cannot imagine any experience outside of my own. <laughs> and I, as a well-educated, extremely middle-class 
academic had a great childhood and so good old demorse his whole thing is about schooling his whole thing about schooling as like being terrible and that we will only be able to have a proper civilized society when children aren't schooled anymore and you're like the worst thing that ever happened to you is that somebody made you get up at 7am to go to school mate like, <laughs> like it. Um, i'm pretty sure that there are a lot of children in this world in the country that you live in because he's american where that is not the worst thing that ever happened to them yeah. and where their childhood ended considerably earlier than that yeah but now it's considerably more complicated and everyone has binned these stupid ideas but that's where they come from mm. and it's still fun to be like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> And pe- people still do talk about them, like Centuries of Childhood does come up a lot and Lloyd de Morse does come up a lot. In fact, I believe that Lawrence Stone, there's a Lawrence Stone quote in my PhD thesis because it was such a good quote, something about children being ground into a pulp by sure. history. Yeah, sure. great. But to get to it, for many children in the past, for many children now, but for many children in the past, life is pretty shit. Yeah. So we're going to kind of go through some of the ways in which... It was be- is better now. It's specific ways in which Nick's child will be able to say that they have never had it so good. Yeah. And the first one of those ways is that they are going to have a childhood that lasts 18 years, probably. Yeah, and that's legally um, defined and protected by the UN. Yeah, the UN Children's Charter, which ratified the UN Rights of the Child which was ratified in the 90, late 1980s, early 1990s, mm-hmm. gives like certain rights for a child up until they are the age of 18, that the child must be give, given means requisite for its normal development, both materially and spiritually, that a child that is hungry must be fed, the child that is sick must be nursed, the child that is backwards must be helped. These are 1920s mm-hmm. <laughs> wording. The delinquent child must be reclaimed. The orphan and the waif must be sheltered and succoured. The child must be first to receive relief in times of distress. The child must be put in a position to earn a livelihood and must be protected against every exploitation. And the child must be brought up in the consciousness that its talents must be devoted to the service of its fellow men. And those are rights that children in the past did not have uh, (laughs) necessarily. Like certainly... There is plenty of times in the past where the child would not be the first to receive relief in times of distress because a child is kind of a drain. Yeah. If you've not got much, it's, it's it would be better to give your food to men and women who can do work yeah. than to a kid who's just kind of D- a, kind of a drain on everyone's resources. Yeah. <laughs> This was ratified by the UK in the 1990s, in 1991, and has consistently failed to apply these things <laughs> consistently. Particularly, it has not well, the delinquent child must be reclaimed. Yeah. And the child must be the first to receive release in times of distress have been criticised by the UN a lot because we put children in custody, put them in prison mm. uh, instead of in rehabilitation. And we also put children asylum seekers in prison. And we also, children are the first to be hit by increases in poverty mm. significantly. And there's very little that is done at the moment to help children in poverty. <laughs> but... Generally, Nick's children will receive these rights. It will, until it's 18, be seen as a child who is deserving of these things. There's also things the UN enshrines the right to play as well, Mm. which is a new thing that it introduced fairly recently, I think. I'm now typing it into Google badly. Yes, Article 31. 
31 now, says that children and young people have the right to have fun in the way they want, whether by playing sports, watching films or something else entirely. They have the right to play and the right to rest. They have the right to play, play up freely in cultural activities just like adults and the government should make it easier for them to do this. They have the right to do the Fortnite dance. They have the right to do the Fortnite dance as much as they like. They have the right to play as much Fortnite as they want. Uh, <laughs> which is not something that anybody really had. Yeah. Interestingly, actually, I've just let so the articles are very focused on the protection of the child. Uh, but interestingly, I've just seen properly everyone under 18 has this rights as Article 1 and Article 2 is all children have these rights, which is a specific differentiation. So they have rights. They have rights that are protected by the government, which is has only really existed until the 90s. Technically, when you and I were born, Janina, we did not have these rights. Well, that's... You know, it's good to know, I guess. <laughs> I, um, I found out as well that actually corporal punishment in New Zealand schools was outlawed much later than I thought it was. When was it outlawed in um, in New Zealand? 1987. Oh, wow. That's a year after. So it was outlawed in state schools in the UK, or in England, sorry, in um, 1986 but then much later for private schools. So mm. it wasn't until 1998 what? that the English private schools banned it. This is the better thing. In 19, It was until 2003 mm -hmm. that it was outlawed by Northern Irish schools. That's that is light. It was, <laughs> to be um, fair, in 1986, they were a bit busy. <laughs> that's true. They're and the 90s, were, they were on. wrapped up in some stuff. Yeah, that's true. And there true. are literally like four private schools in Northern Ireland and they have a total of about 17 children in them. But still, 2003 is crazy. There was a school in Auckland that in 2007 was found to be getting around the corporate pun corporal punishment laws by making students' parents administer the punishment. Oh. So, because parents could still discipline their children on school grounds as long as they weren't staff. So they would just call in the parent and get them to give <laughs> their kids a caning, which wow. uh, is just incredible to me. Uh, but that you can't do that anymore because there's a blanket ban on parents. Uh, administering oh, punishment now. See, that I don't believe that there is in the UK. I believe it's like it was like this... there are strictures on it. Yeah, um, it was very controversial but... when that was going through Parliament. The idea that you of outlawing smacking was really controversial. Yeah, it's a very um, emotional debate. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. We will get to schools though. We will. Yeah, but it is le is lawful, 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 lawful. Uh, <laughs> tried to say legal and lawful at the same time. Sure. <laughs> in the UK, as long as it is like within, is by a legal guardian and it doesn't leave a mark, I think. Uh, sure. But yeah, basically, I mean, you're very, be, the idea of being protected that you won't be hit by anybody is something that will happen if anybody hits Nick's child. I'm sure Nick will go and beat the shit out of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's that. So they will have rights that even you and I, as women in our 30s, did not have when we were children because we were both 10 years old by the time we reached you. <laughs> <laughs> I was 30. No, how old was I in 1991? I was, yeah, I was nearly 10. Mm. So by the time they were introduced, we were already too old, really, to need them. Secondly, next child almost certainly won't die before the age of five. That's quite nice. We've done and pretty, is... pretty good work in keeping kids alive over the last... Century we or so. are really, really good at it now. <laughs> I mean, we've talked before about how much easier that started being when 
doctors started washing their hands. Yes, just literally stage one. Mm-hmm. And then antibiotics and things just is a miracle worker. Yeah. But when you look at like Edward I, who was king of England, had 19 children. And of those 19 children, 10 of them died mm-hmm. before they reached the age of seven. Yeah. And then another one died at 11. It's not a great success, right? No. So of 19 children, 11 of them died in childhood. Yeah. And the child mortality rate, the reason that everybody has that thing where they say that life expectancy in the past was only about 35 Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't live past 35 is not that. It's because when you even it out, so many people died before the age of five. Yeah, they brought the average right down. Yeah. So, okay. So here is some statistics to put it in perspective. So currently (laughs) in England and Wales, for every 1,000 children that is born alive so every not a stillbirth or anything for every 1000 live births 3.7 children will die before the age of about three Mm -hmm. so it's not great but 3.7 is pretty good in the usa they are they have one of the highest i think they have the highest infant mortality rate the 20 most developed countries Mm -hmm. uh, and they have 6.5 deaths for every thousand births and that's considered to be very high these days an extremely high rate is in haiti Mm-hmm. And this is considered to be like staggeringly a problem uh, at 59 for every thousand live births. Like that is yeah. considered to be pretty horrific these days. In the Middle Ages, it is estimated that 300 to 320 children out of every 1,000 births would die. Mm-hmm. So that's almost one in three yeah. babies would not make it past the age of five. And then after surviving till five, childhood also is just generally healthier we have vaccinations that are going to protect against oh my goodness a million dangerous uh illnesses that could have left your child uh dead or severely uh, disabled like scarlet fever yeah smallpox smallpox um polio yeah all of these things which have a huge impact even if they don't even if the child survives we have antibiotics which means that so the thing that the anecdote that always, whenever I think of this kind of thing that always staggers me, is the fact that Abraham Lincoln's son stopped his toe while playing tennis and then died from that mm-hmm. because it got infected and they did had no way of dealing with that infection. Yeah. The, the, yeah, being able to just survive an infection and taking that for granted is a massive deal. Like, I stub my toe probably twice a day. <laughs> And I can do that without worrying that that stubbing might get infected because I know that in a worst case scenario that gets infected and I can go to the doctor and get a seven day course of antibiotics and it'll go away. Yeah. And and I'm an idiot, like literally today, (laughs) and I'm quite tired, but even so, today I turned off the hob, an electric hob after making dinner Mm -hmm. and then some things away and then turned around and went, oh, that needs a wipe and tried to wipe it. Mm -hmm with a cloth literally 20 seconds after i had turned it off it was boiling hot janina it was incredibly <laughs> hot and i burned the shit out of my hand <laughs> it really <laughs> because i'm an idiot like i would not have survived past the age of yeah. six because i would just be like oh i dropped a thing in the fire and just put my hand in the fire yeah like you can't be an idiot in the past you're yeah next child will have the right to be an idiot a clumsy idiot who can fall over as much as they like <laughs> And get as much dirt in those wounds as they want. 
and know that it probably won't kill them. Yeah. That's something that I would bring up on a regular basis if I had a child, I think. Yeah. Like, do you have any idea how great it is that you can be as thick as you are? Because this is pretty great. I mean, like, even the fact that we know now, generally speaking, with some exceptions, how to figure out what is wrong with someone when they get sick. Like, Yeah, we don't are, even think it's humans. Yeah, there are, but there's a staggering amount. Like, you've put this a quote in here that includes a mention to the sweating disease, which was, a, you know, the plague of Tudor England. No one knows what it yeah. was. No one at the time knew what it was, what caused it, or what made it deadly. But it killed loads of people. Yeah. And now, if, that, if something like that happens now, we have the technology to figure out what is actually going on and find a solution, which we have not historically i mean obviously we have done that to some extent historically but we had nothing like the knowledge and technology that we do now no we couldn't really see inside each other yeah the quote that i've got is from a 16th century guy called Hermann von weinsberg who described his childhood uh, illnesses as follows um this is before he was the age, got to the age of nine he had several kinds of fevers including the sweating disease of which several of his acquaintances died within 24 hours also mysterious temporary paralyses boils sores and scabs on his scalps foul flesh in the mouth the barber cut out with a pair of shears worms giving him vertigo diarrhea and violent vomiting constant toothache followed by the extraction of most of his teeth by hand hernia and the plague. Yeah. So And the treatment for all of that was rub it with some herbs and maybe just cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it'll get better in a while. And it's a miracle that any that this kid managed to survive this stuff. Yeah. But like if we had a child who suffered even one of those things, we would be like, Oh my god, start a GoFundMe, <laughs> Jesus. Well, like, not here, because we get this child to Disneyland immediately. Next child will have the NHS, hopefully, fingers crossed, if the Tories don't fuck it up any more than they already have. And you um, will have the NHS. So you won't even have to start a GoFundMe. No, at no point. I mean, that's just talking about how shit America is. But no, is hopefully, shit. at no point, will next child have to start a GoFundMe because he has foul flesh in the mouth that a barber will cut out. <laughs> or he'll never have to go to his barber to have anything cut out of his mouth. Yeah. Which is an A-plus thing about life, I reckon. I think I much prefer not having a barber cut out rotten flesh from my mouth. No. I mean, barbers in the past were, like, the go-to guy for anything that needed cutting. Mm. I was listening to a podcast about the Donna expedition, and they were talking about barbers doing surgery and how you just, like, give them a dollar and they cut off anything you wanted, (laughs) (laughs) basically. Because they're the only people around, really, who deal with people and also have sharp things. But yeah, yeah. Ideally, almost certainly, nothing in next child's life will involve cutting something off, or and even if it does, God forbid, touch wood, we'd be done be by a surgeon in uh, in a, a clean place hospital. with anaesthetic and many drugs, and yeah. it will be safer than it's ever been in the entirety of history up until this point. But yeah, now part of that was a kid in a donor party when they're about halfway through something crushed his leg and they were like we should amputate this so they got like a random herder guy who just happened to be the guy who owned a saw sure to come and try and amputate it um and he arrived apparently he really enjoyed it like it was a thing that he he was very keen on doing and he did it for cheap and he arrived to come and saw this poor kid's leg off and his parents were like shit no (laughs) actually i have changed my mind and so they just let the child's leg kind of fester until eventually they had to do it themselves yeah which is again a thing that will never happen no a plus situation yeah 
Yeah, so that's two good things. We'll have a childhood, won't die before the age of five. Mm-hmm. We'll, if they ever get sick, be given lots of lovely drugs and technology and care and be treated and will suffer very small amount. Mm-hmm. Next, next child will get a good education, a good all-round education that covers something more than learning the Bible and or <laughs> learning some Latin and will never, ever get hit with a stick. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> and neither of those things could be promised to anybody prior to about 1870. In fact, as we've literally just said, you could not promise that you would not get hit by a stick up until 1986. It's astonishingly late. My mum actually has a good story about when the only time that she ever got caned, like caned across the hand when she was at school, <laughs> because her and another kid, when they were about nine or ten years old, thought that it would be funny to tell people that they were twins. <laughs> and they weren't even related. It was just like the kind of yeah. stupid thing that kids do. Yeah. And so she got like, they got physically punished for that. The only time my mum ever got caned at school is because one of her teachers one year, at the end of the school year, said, because he felt that all children should be caned at some point, said, put up your hands if you have not been caned this year. And my mother was honest. And so he caned her for never having been caned before. I know. What a little knock. (laughs) What a little knock. She knocked 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 on herself for being a good girl at school and got 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 whacked with a stick because of it. What are you supposed to learn from that? That's terrible. It's terrible on the teacher's part and idiotic on my mother's. <laughs> the bit that I always think of when I think about corporal punishment is the bit from Roald Dahl's autobiography, Boy, mm. where he went to Repton, which is a fancy private school, uh, where not only the masters but also prefects were allowed to physically punish the younger boys yeah. as one of those schools one of the, the most harrowing parts of their whole book is genuinely awful to read it is so i'm going to read it aloud yay uh, <laughs> he mentions school beatings a lot like beatings from other pupils from prefects and also from masters and uh, he says it he does it because he it left a physical and emotional impression of horror upon him that never left him and that even when he was writing this, he wrote, even today when I have to sit for any length of time in a hard bench or chair, I feel my heart beating along the old lines that the cage cane made on my bottom some 55 years ago. He's not really against the idea of corporal punishment. He just thinks that it was kind of sadistic. Yeah. And he describes the headmaster at Repton, who later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Seriously? Which absolutely baffled uh well done. he did yeah like he went from being the headmaster of repton and then became like the bishop of bath and then became the archbishop of canterbury and basically ruined religion for Roald Dahl forever because he was like, I do not understand how this man could become the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's fair. But the reason is because he... So he describes how this headmaster would flog children and what was considered to be an acceptable punishment in a school in... Was this the 1910s? Yeah. Okay. So this is a description from his friend Michael. Michael was ordered to take down his trousers and kneel on the headmaster's sofa with the top half of his body hanging over the end of the sofa. The great man then gave him one terrific crack. After that, there was a pause. The cane was put down and the headmaster began filling his pipe from a tin of tobacco. He also started to lecture the kneeling boy about sin and wrongdoing. Soon the cane was picked up again and a second tremendous crack was administered upon the trembling buttocks. Then the, th- pipe filling pil- bleh, the pipe filling business and the lecture went on again for maybe another 30 seconds. 
Then came the third crack of the cane. Then the instrument of torture was once more put upon the table and a box of matches was produced. A match was struck and applied to the pipe. The pipe failed to light properly. A fourth stroke was delivered. The lecture continued. This slow and fearsome process went on until ten terrible strokes had been delivered. And all the time, over the pipe lighting and the match striking, the lecture on evil and wrongdoing and sinning and misdeeds and malpractice went on without stop. It even went on as the strokes were being administered. And at the end of it all, a basin, a sponge and a small clean towel were produced by the headmaster and the victim was told to wash away the blood before pulling up his trousers. Yeah, I don't think a person who does that should be the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm with Rod Dahl on that one. Think that a person who does that should be allowed near children. No, like that's so horrifying on so many levels. It's so sadistic and like psychologically and physically cruel. Yeah, Um, I believe there's also Roald Dahl talks about another teacher there who would mark the cane with chalk so that if he was beating you over your clothes, it would leave a mark so he could know that he would hit the same place every time um, in order to make it that much more painful. Yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, it genuinely is. Like, and this is kind of like this level of punishment is of like ritualized and quite sadistic punishment is very localized to English private schools mm. um, or English public schools, as they should really be called. The thing about those sorts of methods of teaching, though, is that there has, well, I find baffling in light of some of the stuff I read today, though, is that there was a concept of education being something that didn't have to be so regimented. In 1690, John Locke was writing about the importance of trying to make school fun for kids. He, He said, Children may be cousined into a knowledge of letters, be taught to read without perceiving it to be anything but a sport, and play themselves into that which others are whipped for. In 1690, and yet that concept, which I feel like today goes, like, it seems obvious, and, like, absolutely the way we should be trying to to raise kids is just ignored for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, like, very specific to English public schools like Eton and Charterhouse and Westminster Mm. and whatever, that they, from about the 18th, 19th century, ascribed to a concept of muscular Christianity and masculinity, Mm -hmm. where harsh punishment and discipline, physical discipline, was within the idea that it was beating effeminacy and yeah and and bad beating badness out of you basically in order to make you a physically stronger person which would then make you a, a spiritually stronger person mm. and better for leadership and so that is also linked to the ideas of like like if you like tom brown school days where they're all like taking cold showers and doing like 10 mile runs in through parks and like banging into each other on the rugby field and whatever yeah and it is like the concept of physical punishment is part of that but also the concept of physical punishment was until really apparently in the 1980s like the way that you punish children like how else are you going to punish them mm. you don't have anything you can take away you can't take away their playstation there's no super nanny their... telling you about the naughty state you can't put them in a timeout because where are you going to put them mm. like literally a foot and a half away from you yeah uh, <laughs> Like, there's no fucking time or energy to be putting anybody in a timeout or anything. There's, there's no, what else are you going to do? Yeah. And the, the notion of, like, having a conversation with them in order to get them to learn about what is wrong is super modern mm-hmm. and, yeah, like, kind of wishy-washy. 
And I'm sure there are people who did it, but it was it's not what come, you know, not the common idea. So yeah, so next child is never going to get hit with a stick at school and is going to get to go to school, which uh, was not compulsory in, t- in England until 1870. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Kids to school. School's good. I mean, school is good. Not always. Sometimes it's awful. But... Education is Education good. Education is like, good. The idea that we as a society educate all of our children until they're at least 16 years old. Yeah. And give them a good rounded education. Yeah. Is is good. Like it's not interestingly, I discovered today, because I obviously knew that schools weren't com- weren't compulsory in England until the nineteenth century, but in Scotland, every community was by law given a school teacher in fifteen sixty. That is really good. The Scottish are well ahead yeah. of Scotland, virtually everything. Oh, Scotland. Compulsory schooling comes in in 1870, and it's really as a result of the in a result of the invention of a middle class, basically, mm. where you have parents who cannot afford to get a governor or a governess for their children and yeah. school them at home individually, and also cannot afford to send them to fee-paying public schools, mm-hmm. which have always been expensive, but are obviously not going to send their kids because the only other place that you would get technically an education in extreme inverted commas was like the poorhouse or the workhouse mm. when you were too young, when you were just being trained for an apprenticeship, really, yeah. given the basic skills. And so schools originally primarily were through churches. And there's actually a good bit of Irish issue that not that many people know about is that um, Catholic churches were banned in Ireland from produ- providing schooling. Uh, they were not allowed to have schools. They were not allowed to provide teachers until, uh, again, 1870. In an attempt to force the anybody who wanted to school their children to convert to Anglicism. Because church Because schools were all provided by churches. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted your kid to go to so, school, you had to be Protestant. And so, yeah, they, obviously you couldn't be Catholic and go to a Protestant school. And so they attempted to force people to convert to... Protestant to Anglicanism in order to educate their children. But what that meant was that this phenomenon emerged called hedge schools, which were illegal Catholic church run <laughs> schools for Catholic and poor children. So people who also couldn't afford, so potentially Protestant people who couldn't afford to send their children to yeah. Anglican schools, which were free schools. And they're called hedge schools because sometimes they were held in hedges. Sure. And they were often <laughs> like in, in people's houses, in people's, in like, a priest's house in church halls and stuff like they would have them wherever they could as much as they could no one was ever really prosecuted but they were illegal um and they were certainly not publicized (laughs) outside of their community there's a really good play by called translations by brian Mm freel which is about hedge school which is also about the process of the english going around ireland and trying to work out what places were called and anglicising them, so turning up at places called, like, Bailafest um, and trying to work out how to you can anglicise that and call, ending up with Belfast. Mm-hmm. But it, that's about hedge school and it's really interesting because, obviously, like, this complete attempt to not educate an entire, like, a century's worth of, of Catholic children, yeah. basically. That's insane. Yeah, it is. The history of Ireland is kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. England yeah, did a number and, on, on Ireland. Yeah, they did. And even in England, like before that, if you were a poor child and you didn't have a governor, you didn't get to go to public school, then you your education was probably pretty terrible. Mm. There is, I found a thing, f- this is for workhouses, which we'll get to in a second. 
which is they were if you got stuck in a workhouse as a child you were technically supposed to have three hours of education a day mm-hmm. in the after the 1830s but the people who owned workhouses obviously did not get into uh, workhousing <laughs> in order to educate children yeah and educating children was considered to be a waste of time and money and potentially bad for them because then they might get ideas above their station sure. and so they tried to do things like only educate them to read but not write oh okay. so they would be able to read but they wouldn't be able to write because writing was considered to be a waste of their time and then some they brought in a law at some point that anybody entering a, an apprenticeship had to be able to write their name unaided which kind of, so they just basically trained them to do that. And it was kind of a little bit of an arms race for a while. Of, Jeez. Like moralizing people try to, trying to turn workhouses into a place of educating we heathens and bettering them morally. Right. Um, and giving them some basic education. And pe- the kind of people who own a workhouse, who I really can't imagine were the best people. Like, no, it's not a nurturing field. No, I feel like if you were the kind of person who's like, I will open a workhouse, you might be the kind of, a kind of pantomime villain. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I mean, yeah, it seems like a literal to think about pantomime people villain. People literally like that, but I cannot imagine doing that if you're, if you don't have a twirly black moustache. <laughs> and yeah. You know, and it like go <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a bit. It's unimaginable, it, like that you people would go into it. It is. Yeah, so he'll get an education. It'll be an education that's not provided by church, so it won't just be Bible shit. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like science wasn't introduced into the curriculum until really late. Can't remember what the year is now, but it's surprisingly late. And lots of the curriculum was religious education, and classics classical languages mm-hmm. so useful to be re- and obviously arithmetic mm-hmm. basics yeah cl- but classical languages is like considered to be the be all and end all of education like if you've got classics you don't need anything else basically yeah which is as i say this <laughs> as a per- i'm not a classicist um, i'm an ancient historian but i do like read latin and stuff and i've read a lot of classes and yeah it's useful for some stuff but there's other stuff too <laughs> Yeah, so he'll get a good, well-rounded education. He'll be given the chance to find whatever it is that they he likes to do and is good at and mm-hmm. encouraged to do it. If he's good at sport, he can do that. If he's good at art, he can do that. If he's good at languages, he'll be able to do that, like whatever it is mm-hmm. that he is able to do. So good for him. Yeah, that's pretty and nice. And then also, won't have to get a job until he's 16. That's pretty good. At least. Might not even have to get one at 16. I had one at 16. That was when I, I had my first 16. job. Maybe 15. My first real job was at 16 and I got a job at Marks and Spencer's. Oh, I got a job at one of those little, it was like a little um, sandwich hatch in a, in a tiny mall. It wasn't very fun and I didn't do it very no. long. Marks and Spencer's, Marks and Spencer's was pretty good actually because I worked weekends and evenings and it was primarily just teenagers mm-hmm. um, and we had a pretty good time. And I still got friends from, to this day that, from that time. Ah. I had a pretty great time. But... My only job before that was when I was, I think I was about 13 and I helped my grandma's friend with his garden because he couldn't bend down anymore. Oh, nice. It was. He had a very cute dog. Um, That's the best thing to have at a job if you can get it. Yeah, I think he paid me like £2 an hour or something, which is fine because uh, he also let me... He had an enormous garden, like a vegetable and fruit and garden and stuff. <laughs> so I also got to take home huge amounts of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and it was lovely. But technically... You cannot take a job in the UK that involves the transfer of money, which almost all jobs do until you're 16. 
like the worst thing that's gonna happen is you get a paper round which is a shit job but it is a shit job i didn't have a paper round, but my younger brothers and sisters did um, yeah. My brother used to take a tennis racket with him because there was a vicious magpie that kept trying to attack him. <laughs> magpies in New Zealand are not like magpies here. They are horrible, vicious creatures that all fly down at your head and that's it. Uh, so he are they took... like? <laughs> They're just the... are they like uh, seagulls are here? No, no, because they will actually attack you. Like they will, they will pick at your head properly and, and like they're just very, very territorial. Um, wow. They're horrible, horrible things. And I still get freaked out when I see magpies here, even though I know they're a completely different species and they're docile <laughs> and they're not going to attack me. I still freak out because in New Zealand they are just bastards. Well, yeah. I didn't have one because I was again up there early in the morning. <laughs> oh, well, theirs was an after-school one. That was quite good. It was like oh. a, um, an afternoon edition of a local paper. So well, that was all go. right. No, but my sister had one. She had to get up in the morning. My nephew had one until from when he was about fourteen, um, and actually he might have been younger than that. And he had to get up at like six o'clock in the morning and then go to work and then go to school. It's like no, I'm not doing that's that. No, that's no good at all. Yeah, but so which and again that is a remarkable privilege of being part of a Western society that is enormously affluent and. Pre- considers children and childhood to be something that is worth protecting Mm. and work to be something that children do not do like the leisure time of 16 years basically that is dedicated to education and growth is is a remarkable thing that next child will have that most children in the past did not have yeah Uh, even even rich children particularly would not have that long before they were expected to be at least doing something useful yeah Unless they were of the, like, independent income ilk when they never got to be useful. They just kind of wafted around being utterly useless. Although even then, depending on, um, you know, if you're set to inherit an estate, like, you might be expected to take part in the running of that. You might have to learn some accounting stuff. You might have to learn (laughs) how to take care of your tenants. Like, there are still responsibilities in that that, um, class bracket, I guess, even though our image of them is you know, dissolute young men drinking in London and, you know, getting syphilis. Yeah, drinking in London, getting syphilis. Yeah, that yeah. is generally considered, well, my, it's still considered bad behaviour and shirking your responsibilities because you do have a... My image of them, I have to say, is of the kind of dude who would be like, I have an education and I am now going to be a polymath. Sure. And I would to I get or I'm gonna start an expedition to South America or mm-hmm. I'm going to have the world like like the guy and my cousin Rachel who is like, I have the world's greatest collection of fucking trees in <laughs> Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah, what I do is I travel the world and bring trees back. Yeah. Although um, even in my cousin Rachel, he does have an enormous amount of like taking care of the people who work the farm and making sure they have a nice Christmas party. He has Christmas an enormous party. amount of that when he's around. Yeah. Like, but he can also delegate that to somebody else. Yeah, he does like to fuck and, off and, and buy a tree. And off for six months of the year. That's yeah. true. Like, it's not a hard life. <laughs> yeah, like that kind of, or like, yeah, like I'm going to be a scientist and investigate, I don't know, whatever, and make some great discovery that's super useful but was only possible because you were unbelievably rich mm-hmm. and didn't need to actually work in any way. You could just have money come in yeah. and, like, 
spend your time wanking onto slides and then looking at your sperm in order to see what was in them, which is a real thing that people did in order to (laughs) prove that uh, sperm was, or was, in fact, was not, as it turned out, tiny little men inside a bubble. (laughs) I can't remember the name of the guy now who is, like, absolutely convinced that sperm was... Tiny homunculi, tiny, 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 tiny little men. That's beautiful. It's <laughs> uh, an image that I love. Um, yeah, but most children would have to be useful mm. as soon as they were able to be, which is usually around the age of about 14, that they would kind of be sent off. Although during the Industrial Revolution, and Oliver has written a lot of really quite horrific uh, <laughs> examples <laughs> of the Industrial Revolution is when we think of child labour like children in cotton farm factories and and getting their fingers caught in spinning jennies and really horrible thing that he's got about a girl called Mary Richards who was thought to be remarkably pretty at the age of nine got her apron caught in a drawing frame and was just instantly sucked into it like just crushed and wound into the machinery and just a huge amount of accidents that happened, and that's the kind of thing that we think of, which is really more a problem. This is going to sound terrible. Really more a problem of um, bad labour laws yes. um, <laughs> than child labour, because I mean, it's um, bad labour laws are bad to start with, and then made worse by yeah. expecting children to operate within them. Yes, who can't? Yeah, yeah. who are, don't have the skills to prone to accidents. Yes. But yes, there was a, like a huge amount. And then on top of that, you have the issue that there was no state support for people who were disabled. Mm. So once you've mangled your thing, hand in a machine, you are pretty much fucked. You're useless, basically. And then you get sent to a poorhouse or prison. Mm. There is, interestingly, and I in this, it's obvious when you think about it, but I had never thought about it properly, the... Workhouses and poor houses um, and arms houses. So workhouses for people who could work, poor houses for people who couldn't, prisons for people who could work and wouldn't, mm-hmm. were brought into existence by the Poor Law of 1601 by Elizabeth I. But they had to be brought into existence because all of that work was presided by monasteries mm-hmm. prior to... The Destruction of the monasteries, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, which meant that other things had to be put into place. Yeah. According to a guy called Paul Slack, who I have to say I don't know who he is, but is estimated that monasteries alone provided the equivalent to 3.4 million a year uh, in arms for the poor before 1537, and that sum was not made good by private benefactions after 1580. Mm. So basically, as soon as monasteries were taken away, that was a place where disabled people, where poor people, where children whose parents had died, where people who couldn't work, mm-hmm. or were just babies, <laughs> um, were would be and would could be looked after, and were probably like not exactly great, uh, but still. Is better than a workhouse, I reckon. Yeah. Or better than being sent to go and work in a spinning jenny and get your fingers pulled off. Even just in the um, simple fact that it's a place where your worth is not dictated by what you can do. 
which is yes, basically it's just the, by being a human. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what's behind all this, right? Like, if you can't, if you're not useful, then you have no value, which is a, a barbaric way of operating. Yeah, um, and that is, I mean, that's been pretty much in the original poor law and in their 1823 new poor law, like that if you're if you can work, you have to work, mm. and if you and if you n don't work, then you're going to prison. Yeah, like that is because when no one's going, you have no value unless it is an economic value, yeah. basically. Yeah, but that is right from 1601. Like that is not a. Yeah, it is something that is very much of the like the neoliberal world that we live in. Um, that everyone's worth has to be a worth to. Uh, has to be a monetary worth um but it is certainly an elizabethan thing too that you're worth you have to be giving something to the state in order to receive something to this from the state mm. uh, or you just not even to receive something from the state you have to be giving something to the state in, in order, order to, to be exist. allowed to lie yeah. um like if you're not then you there's didn't fuck you yeah. basically like and there is very much like the very strong idea of people as a burden um, yeah. and as children who can't work as a burden um being trained up to be useful um and produce is not great and we will never do that to a to a child to somebody that we see as having value just you yeah. know these days any people under 18 ex once you get to over 18 and you see like i see so many like 23 year olds 24 year olds being like i haven't found my like thing that i'm gonna do yeah but and they but they're basically babies to me but <laughs> we don't do that to we don't say to a 12 year old you're going to do an apprenticeship in I don't know, leather tanning and then you're going to be a leather tanner yeah. until you die and your children are going to be leather tanners and... and that's the function you fill in society and that's why you are allowed to exist and the reason that you're going to be a leather tanner is because there is an opening for a leather tanner right now <laughs> and that's what you're going to be yeah. like I really, really care if you're good at it or interested but now we you know a 12 year old gets to exist just for the joy of existing yeah and for the pleasure that he brings the people in his life. Yeah. This, Which is a, a remarkable privilege. <laughs> it's a bit better. Yeah. And, you know, they will have to probably hoover their bedroom and tidy it up and do a bit of few, do the washing up twice a week or something. Mm -hmm. But it's not really the same. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's all right. That's just learning how to yeah. be a human. <laughs> all of that is very um, urban, to be fair, like yeah. that is a function of urbanization, workhouses and things, and then much later a function of industrialization that requires a lot of labor constantly, yeah. <laughs> and that is quite expendable. But like in the rural world, all the way back, children would be working from as soon as they were could work basically, and you'll you'll see that you know even now if you grow up on a farm, you'll be yeah. out milking cows or. Taking feed know, to chickens and things. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't be idle in a world where there's work to be done. Yeah. But Nick's baby is going to grow up in nice urban Nottingham where there's he's not going to grow up on a farm. <laughs> he's never going to have to get up to milk a cow unless, <laughs> like me, he goes on... I used to go on holidays when I was younger and go to farms yeah visit, visit a farm and, then... and milk a cow and then drink the milk that you've just milked yeah great
so great. So he'll get to do that as a treat, but then he can go back and not have to do it anymore. And it's great. Yeah. And finally, Nick's child will get to do whatever the fuck he wants with his leisure time. (laughs) And there's so much to do. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. He can open Spotify or YouTube and listen to any music or watch a clip of anything that he wants at any time. He'll watch Peppa Pig 24 hours a day (laughs) if he wants to. Yeah. All the benefit Um, of all the entertainment that has ever been made up to this point. This is quite a cool category because it literally just does get better with time. Because you don't not have the stuff that was made 200 years ago anymore. We still have that. And then we also have all of this new stuff. It's amazing. Yeah, like... We can listen to medieval music if we want to. We yep. can listen to music from the Romans if we want to. We can read some good Greek plays. Yeah, we can. But also, you can do the fucking Fortnite stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, you, know, you, you can do, do all this stuff in all these different places. If next kid grows up and decides to move literally as far away as it's possible to move, I can tell you from personal experience, he or she will still be able to visit. Like... Fairly regularly yeah. without too much of a problem. Talk to your family all the time. Nick is Chinese of Chinese origin and, you know, and his kid will be able to go to China and come back and they can have a, you know, yeah. they can be in contact with their Chinese family and their Chinese heritage and their British family and their British heritage. And that's amazing because if you were a Chinese person in the Roman world and then you moved to Britain, which they did, and we have their skeletons, so we know that they did. You basically never got to go back. Yeah. Like, you tip writing a letter and then getting that back, that's like a year. Yeah. You couldn't Skype your family. And the journey that's amazing. to get there is not only month takes months, but is really dangerous and... Probably quite boring. Probably very boring, I would say. I mean, the journey from England to New Zealand now is still pretty boring. It takes, like, two days, and depending on what airline you fly by, you might not have a massive selection of... Films, but you got some, and it and it doesn't take six months. No, it doesn't, and you'll almost certainly not die of dysentery. You won't die of dysentery. You won't die of like there won't be a storm, won't kill you. Yeah, yeah. Like you can go anywhere in the world. In the past, if you wanted to like shoot somebody in in the back of the head, then you had to just go into the street and do that, (laughs) and then you go to jail. Yeah, and now you can can, simulate it, and then if they shoot you, you can just load it back up again yeah if you wanted to shout homophobic slurs at people you had to do that in public (laughs) now you can just do it on the internet yeah in your game chat but now also you can be exposed to no the greatest thing about the internet as far as i'm concerned is that i have been exposed to the experiences and stories and lives of millions of people that i would never have imagined Mm -hmm. and can have access to and the chance to understand the enormous and infinite varieties of experience yeah. in the world which it's super easy to have a broad <laughs> understanding of humanity now because people from all walks of life are talking about themselves yeah and that's amazing it's incredible yeah i mean downside is that these days you can't just do what we did as kids which is get on your bike and then cycle around for like eight hours and then come home again yeah but that's mostly because there's roads everywhere. There are roads everywhere. And to be honest, out there, the 4G signal's not so great. So. <laughs> Until there's Wi-Fi everywhere, why would you want to? <laughs> that's very fair. <laughs> and as I've written here, start their own podcast at any time. You can. It's real um, easy. And Yeah, it's super easy. Look at us. We can yeah. do it. 
We're idiots. So all in all, rounding off, pretty great life, actually, Nick's kids. Yeah. I'm imagining now that Nick is going to be playing this to their now 11-year-old child yeah. who is declaring that it's not fair that they have to do the hoovering. Yeah. And here we are to and roundly so, tell them, you really literally never had it so good. It's so great right now. I assume, like, what will 11 years from now be? 2027? No, 2029. Mm-hmm. I'm good at (laughs) (laughs) In 2029, I assume there'll be like hovercraft. I mean, I was promised hovercraft by now. I was promised hovercraft Um, in 2015 and it didn't happen. I know a whole... I know a whole bunch of people who have like Roombas so they don't really have to do their own hoovering. So I imagine it'll be really easy by 2029. Yeah. So Nick's kid... Your life is so great. You're never going to get sucked into a horrible machine and mangled. You're never going to get beaten by a sadistic Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) You're never going to get a sweating fever that nobody understands and die at three. Yep. You are a child and you are protected and vulnerable and considered to be innocent and delightful and anything that you do will get a ruffle hair and then it'll get better. It is great to be a child in... (laughs) In 2018 or in 2029, it's brilliant. We assume, unless there's an apocalypse. Then, then I mean, unless there's then an we apologise, but, but we could not have predicted it. I'm sorry that I didn't predict the apocalypse that happened or the rise of the like ice wolves, mm-hmm. but nobody could have seen that coming. No, so we're sorry that we didn't. <laughs> so. I think that's a good answer. I think it's yeah. a good lot of horrible anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. The past was brutal, and I'm glad that I don't live there. Yeah, I mean, the present is pretty brutal, and the coda to all of this, as always, is that this is... It is great to be a middle-class child in the UK yes. who has an enormous amount of privilege. There are still plenty of places the in the world a child. where children do not have any of these privileges, and... Uh, there are places in the UK where children do not have these yep. privileges. People who who are legally defined by the UN as a person under eighteen do not have these privileges. So count your blessings and check your privilege. Yeah, yeah. And there we go. That's the answer to the question. What are we going to talk about next time? Next time we have a question from C Smother eighty seven, and here's just what's the history of names? It's a nice broad one. It is. I mean, he has some more to that about, like, why Roman names changed and Mm -hmm. how modern names came about. And because you get, like, modern names of, like, having a surname and then also things like uh, Leonardo da Vinci, like Leonardo or Vinci Mm -hmm. and some other stuff. But it's like a paragraph. We'll get to it. We will get to it next time. (laughs) So next time is what's the history of names? So we're going to talk about names. Again, it'll probably be Western Europe focused because that's our thing. But yeah, it should be interesting. Uh, technically, the history of names is called uh, onomastics, which sounds rude. It does sound rude, but also good. I think it sounds really close to onanism. Ah. Um, and also has mastics in it. So it's like two words for masturbation squished together. <laughs> I can't, like, I can't have a foot but feel like that was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the study of names so like self-study yeah. anyway until next time send us your questions at at sexy history pod on the twitter mm-hmm. or sexy history pod at gmail.com you can facebook us at sexy history pod <laughs> and you can talk to me at, at nuclear teeth and you can talk to me at j9 and if 
And you can talk to lovely Oliver at a at Kiwa. And you can leave us reviews and things on iTunes and all of the other usual places and mm-hmm. subscribe. That's good. And listen to us. We like it. And say hi. We like that too. Yeah. And yeah, that's about it. That is. Bye, Janina. Bye, Emma. Bye.